Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law. What does a prosecutor have to prove in order to get a RICO conviction? Tell us why the Solicitor General is sometimes referred to as the 10th Justice. Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. That's Jennifer Kay for Bloomberg Law. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is the toughest hurdle for prosecutors proving Trump's intent? Alito took on Congress, saying Congress has no power to regulate the Supreme Court. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to a special edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, we'll look at some of the high-profile cases the Supreme Court heard in 2023 and one they might hear in 2024. We'll discuss double jeopardy, trademarks, and baseball's antitrust exemption. All that's ahead, but first... Sure that every single justice up in that court knows we are here, we are watching, and we demand that they put our lives over the interests of the gun lobby. Hundreds of protesters took to the Supreme Court this fall to support the federal ban on domestic abusers having guns. And inside, the justices seemed to agree, suggesting during oral arguments that they'll preserve the ban. And it didn't even seem like a hard issue. Both liberals and conservatives sounded persuaded that the ban is in line with the long-standing practice of disarming dangerous people. And the defendant undoubtedly fit in that category. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts questioning his attorney. You don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment, mean someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people. Uh, that's a good start. My guest is Second Amendment expert Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. Let's start with the big question. Did it seem like justices across the board were inclined to uphold this federal gun ban? It did. It felt very one-sided in the Supreme Court, and it felt like almost all the justices, if not all the justices, were inclined to uphold the federal ban in this case. This is the first test of last year's ruling in Bruin that established a constitutional right to carry a handgun in public. So in order to understand it, I think we have to take a look at the historical analysis test established in Bruin that's caused so much confusion in the lower courts and led to them striking down gun control laws that have been on the books for decades. So tell us about that test, Adam. In the Bruin case, Justice Thomas's majority opinion said that for gun laws to be constitutionally permissible today, they must have historical analogs in the 17 and 1800s when the Second Amendment was adopted and the 14th Amendment was adopted, incorporating the Second Amendment to apply to the states. As a result, courts have really struggled over the last year or so trying to find gun laws back in those days that are sufficiently analogous to many common-sense mainstream gun laws that we have today. 
Truth be told, many of our gun laws are kind of 20th century inventions, bans on felons possessing firearms, bans on the mentally ill possessing firearms, and the issue in this case, ban on domestic abusers possessing firearms. These are laws that don't have any obvious analog in the 17 and 1800s. And so this law was struck down by the Fifth Circuit, just like courts around the country have been striking down gun laws for lack of a clear historical precedent. So then how did the justices get around that lack of a clear historical precedent and all end up seemingly in favor of this ban? First of all, I think it's important to note what Elizabeth Proligar, the Solicitor General, began her oral argument with by noting the statistics that show that domestic abusers with firearms are an incredibly deadly mix and that 48 states and the federal government have prohibited domestic abusers from possessing firearms, showing that what she intended to do was not just rely on the history and tradition, but on the common sense idea that some people are too dangerous to have firearms. What the court seemed to be inclined to do is allow the government to frame their gun laws at a higher level of generality. You don't have to show that there's a history and tradition of domestic abusers being prohibited from possessing firearms. And of course, there isn't a long history and tradition of that. But maybe you could show that there's a history and tradition of prohibiting dangerous people from possessing firearms. And domestic abusers are just a modern day understanding of people who are just too dangerous to have guns. Did the liberal justices see like they wanted to use this case to revisit that history-based test? Here's Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. What's the point of going to the founding era? I mean, I thought it was doing some work, but if we're still applying modern uh, sensibilities, I don't really understand the historical uh, framing. It did seem like she was pressing that It's very hard to defend this domestic violence abuser ban when people are subject to a restraining order in light of the history and tradition approach that the Bruin court offered. Although Bruin said that you should look for analogous laws, I think that at the end of the day, the government is hard pressed to draw a very close analogy. Instead, the analogies were very general and didn't exactly apply on point. Did a majority of the conservative justices seem to want to limit any decision to the facts here? Justice Neil Gorsuch said at one point, do we need to get into any of that? It did seem like several of the justices, including Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito, were looking for ways to narrow the consequence of ruling against Rahimi in this case and in favor of upholding the law, talking about whether there might be different as-applied challenges that someone could bring or whether there might be some common law defenses that one could bring to a charge that one was possessing a firearm illegally in violation of a domestic violence restraining order. And several of the justices, at least Justice Alito, expressed some discomfort with the idea that these domestic violence restraining orders could be very long-lasting and yet don't have very serious procedural requirements that correspond with broad notions of due process, perhaps. The Solicitor General said the court should use the present case to give more guidance to the lower courts and to correct lower courts, quote, profound misreading of the Bruin decision. Do you think we'll get any major statements out of this ruling? I think that's going to be one of the big questions. Is this a really narrow ruling that just cobbles together a majority, or is it an opinion that will provide more guidance to the lower courts? 
Justice Kagan specifically asked about that and about the necessity. And the Solicitor General had a very clear and precise answer that there were three errors being committed by the lower courts. Uh, they were only looking to regulation and not looking to other historical sources. They were looking at regulation, but were really looking for twins rather than for historical analogs. And also that the absence of regulation should not always be read against the government, especially when a problem like domestic violence was not really thought of as a problem back then. So I admit that I find this historical analysis test with Second Amendment cases just bordering on ridiculous. Were there any clues as to whether the conservatives remained behind the historical analysis that Thomas put in place? Well, I think that the Solicitor General made a very strategic choice not to challenge the history and tradition test of Bruin, but instead seek to, if anything, recapture its fluidity, its ability to be useful to uphold laws, not just to strike down laws. And so she was not asking the court to abandon the history and tradition test. Rather, she was saying that the lower courts have been misapplying that test and that to capture the true essence of that test means that you should approach the issue the way she did at a slightly higher level of generality, focusing on dangerousness rather than looking for historical precedents of domestic abusers being prohibited access to firearms. If you had to guess, would you guess that it's going to be a limited opinion or a broader opinion? If I were to guess, I would say this is likely to be a nine to nothing, maybe eight to one or seven to two opinion. And I think because of that, the larger the majority, the less likely it is to be very far reaching, that it may be one of these cases that gets assigned to Justice Gorsuch to just do as little damage as possible (laughs) to the Bruin test. But I do think that no matter how big the majority is to uphold the federal law here, if indeed the court does uphold the federal law here, it will be very good news for gun safety reform advocates. They've been struggling to defend gun laws in courts, bans on guns without serial numbers, bans on assault weapons. So if the court does move to this higher level of generality and says that government can prohibit people who are dangerous from having firearms, it would provide a basis for defending a lot of our core gun laws that we really rely on in modern 21st century America. And Adam, we also saw that the Supreme Court agreed to decide the fate of the federal criminal ban on bump stocks the attachments that let a semi-automatic rifle fire much like a machine gun. What do you make of that? Do you make anything of it? No, I don't make much of it. I think that is really an administrative law case. It's about whether the administrative agency went too far in interpreting its powers under the Gun Control Act and other federal statutes that regulate firearms. And so I think that although they both deal with firearms regulation, both these cases They're very different. One's a Second Amendment case that's going to be decided on Second Amendment grounds and have huge impact on how other Second Amendment cases are handled. Whatever the court does on the bump stocks will be much more important for administrative law and the scope of administrative agency authority under the Constitution. A lot of administrative law cases this term. Thanks so much, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School. A note, Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Every Town for Gun Safety. Coming up, the fight to trademark Trump too small. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Law as we look back at some of the high-profile Supreme Court cases last year and look ahead to 2024. I'm June Grosso. He's always calling me Little Marco. And I don't think that he's taller than me. He's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? Never hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? You may remember in the early days of the 2016 presidential election when former President Donald Trump and Florida Senator Marco Rubio were engaged in some locker room talk over the size of Trump's hands. Now it's part of a case before the Supreme Court. Attorney Steve Elster says he has a free speech right to trademark the phrase Trump too small to use on T-shirts. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office disagreed, and it appears that the Supreme Court also disagrees. At oral arguments on Wednesday, justices across the ideological divide suggested that denying Elster a trademark for the phrase does not violate his free speech rights for a host of reasons. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson discussed the point of trademark law. And trademark is not about expression. Trademark is not about the First Amendment and and people's ability to speak. Trademark is about source identifying and preventing consumer confusion. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that not getting a trademark does not infringe on his speech. Because you're not talking about stopping the speech. You're talking about not receiving government protection for activity that you would like to heighten protection for doesn't stop you from selling. It doesn't stop you from selling anywhere as much as you want. Justice Neil Gorsuch pointed to history. But at the end of the day, um, it's pretty hard to argue that a tradition that's been around a long, long time since the founding, you know, common law type stuff is, is, is inconsistent with the First Amendment. And the chief justice said that giving him a trademark would have the effect of restricting the speech of other people. Because the whole point of the trademark, of course, is to prevent other people from doing the same thing. So if you win, you know, the slogan, Trump too small or whatever, other people can't use it, right? The case revolves around a section of the Lanham Act that requires written consent to use the name of a living person in a trademark. Joining me to help explain it all is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Muchen Rosenman. 
Terry, tell us about the procedural background of this case. Mr. Elser sought trademark registration from the United States Trademark Office, and the trademark examiner handling the application denied it as a violation of the Lanham Act, which is the trademark laws. Mr. Elster then appealed within the trademark office, which confirmed the denial. And Mr. Elster took it to the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit here in D.C. The Federal Circuit unanimously reversed the decision of the trademark office on constitutional grounds. It found that at least as applied in this case, Section 1052C of the Lanham Act was unconstitutional in light of the First Amendment. And the Trademark Office decided that this was important enough to appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. Elster's lawyer told the court that the government's sole interest in denying the trademark is protecting the feelings of famous people. But that's not a legitimate reason to burden protected speech. How did his argument strike you? It sort of struck me as being weak in many ways. I thought it was extraordinarily weak. My reaction was that Mr. Elster's counsel did not do a very good job. It was pointed out in the press that this was his very first argument to the Supreme Court, but quite frankly, it came across as his first appellate argument of any sort. And indeed, his response to this question was really a Hail Mary because he was unable to answer a previous question from Justice Kagan. Justice Kagan had asked him for any case that he could think of in which the conveying of a government benefit in a position-neutral viewpoint had been held to be unconstitutional. You know, it was crickets in the room. He he had nothing. (laughs) Nothing except maybe a sinking feeling? Yeah, when Justice Sotomayor asked this, he went for his press conference soundbite, which was, oh, we can't be protecting the feelings of famous people. Well, you know, that's actually not what this statute is about. And it helps sometimes to read the actual wording of a statute here, 15 U.S.C. 1052C, essentially bars registration of a trademark that, quote, consists of or comprises a name, portrait, or signature identifying a particular living individual except by his written consent. This applies to everybody. It applies to you, applies to me, applies to listeners. A living person's name and legacy can't be used to promote another product. And this is fundamental to trademark law going back into the common law. It was known as passing off. You know, it was claiming that some famous person had blessed this product or was associated with it. And so it was very much sort of a an absurd response to Justice Sotomayor and really reflected a core problem with their argument, which Justice Thomas identified quickly. He asked just straight out, what's the burden on free speech here? And really didn't get an answer because simple fact that, as you said, you People are already using this slogan everywhere. The fact that you don't get registration does not mean you can't use the slogan. And Mr. Elster himself has already been using it. All it means is he's been denied the benefit of registration, which is the ability to exclude in certain circumstances third parties from using his slogan. And the Chief Justice, John Roberts, pointed out that giving him a trademark would have the effect of restricting speech by other people who want to use that slogan. And I think it's a fair point to make that, in effect, by granting the trademark registration here, because of the unique category in which it's sought, it really does limit other people's free speech. Because this slogan, 
Trump too small is apparently commonly used by folks who are opposing former President Trump's candidacy. So, Terry, we always say you can't tell from the oral arguments how the court is going to rule. But it seemed to me that justices across the ideological spectrum were against giving this phrase trademark protection. I agree with that. My count was that there was a clear majority skeptical of granting registration. And I agree with your comment. It's hard to always read oral arguments. But in this case, particularly the tonalities of the justices' questions really reflected pretty hardened positions, antagonistic to any attempt to register this. My count had Justice Thomas, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Chief Justice Roberts as all skeptical, if not outright, saying they were opposed to registration here. In addition, I had Justice Gorsuch and Alito disagreeing with Mr. Elster's counsel on different grounds. They historically are opposed to this notion that trademark confers a government benefit. So by my count, that's six justices who seem pretty firmly opposed to registration of this trademark. And I really couldn't count any of the other justices as being in favor of it. They just seemed to not express an opinion one way or the other. So six zippy is a pretty good starting point for the government here. So that leads me to the question, how did a unanimous panel of the federal circuit allow this trademark? June, we could spend a lot of time on decisions by the Federal Circuit, where I practice a lot, by the way, and the level of disrespect accorded to those decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States. True. I mean, the mere fact that this decision came out of the Federal Circuit probably starts off with, you know, points in the government's favor here, because the Supreme Court just doesn't respect decisions, most significant decisions coming out of the Federal Circuit. The history of reversal is just phenomenal. And so, I mean, those of us who practice the Federal Circuit on a regular basis say, okay, you get granted, search the RE out of the Federal Circuit, you got a good chance of winning. And this is another great example. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Canton Eugen Rosenman. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Now we'll take a look at a case the Supreme Court could hear in 2024 involving America's favorite pastime. The sounds of baseball, not only the national pastime and a more than $10 billion industry, but also the only sport in the country that's exempt from the antitrust laws. And now some minor league teams are asking the Supreme Court to eliminate baseball's antitrust exemption. Why? As they put it in one brief, enough already. Joining me is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, tell us how baseball got this antitrust exemption? Well, this is one of the most reviled exemptions from (laughs) the point of view of antitrust lawyers, unless they represent baseball companies or teams or leagues. And even the courts don't like it. So it came about originally um, because of a decision in 1922 by the Supreme Court called Federal Baseball. And uh, this was an opinion written by Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, distinguished jurist. And it was an effort to actually push out some competing leagues. 
And Holmes said that, uh, well, the antitrust laws don't cover this. Baseball is neither commerce nor interstate commerce. It's just sport, and it just takes place locally. So even though players even then traveled from state to state and there was a lot of money involved, perhaps Justice Holmes, as the Boston Brahmin, disdained baseball. It was sort of like us now, raised with a certain kind of entertainment, reviewing video games. What is that? (laughs) And is there so much money involved? Are you serious? So maybe that was Holmes' reaction. I don't know. But in any event, that was a decision. The antitrust laws didn't apply. So that's 1922. The Supreme Court reaffirmed that decision in a case called Toulson in 1953 involving New York Yankees, my memory is correct. And the court said even though the decision was sort of dubious when made, it's now precedent. And all aspects of that decision had been undermined, even in the intervening period. The courts had a rather narrow conception of what constituted interstate commerce, perhaps, in 1922, but it had expanded clearly in the New Deal era, and antitrust cases had gone along, and there's no doubt that baseball should have been considered interstate commerce all along, and certainly a business. But the court said business of baseball is exempt from the antitrust laws from the Sherman Act. And then the the third case in this is a case called Flood against Kuhn. This involved Kurt Flood, who didn't want to be bound by what was called the Reserve Clause, which prevented players, once they were under contract, from going to some other team, even after the contract was over. And this was an opinion written by Justice Blackman. This goes beyond sort of antitrust law. If you teach a course in law school about precedent and the need to follow precedent, you know, you would want to teach this opinion because it's a pay-on to baseball and the greats of baseball and how they flourished under this system. I mean, it was very clear that Harry Blackman was a great baseball fan and loved all these players, and now you come along, Kurt Flood, and you're going to challenge the system? <laughs> Give me a break. You know, everyone prospered. So on the basis of the doctrine of stare decisis, let the decision stand, the Supreme Court refused to overrule Toulson and federal baseball behind it, saying, no, we've had this exemption, this decision too long, no matter what we think of it legally, we're bound. Now, there's no one who will stand up for this, as I said, except people who represent baseball teams. Now, there is one final little bit of a change, which is Congress passed a law in 1998 called the Kurt Flood Act, which took out of the exemption, put back into antitrust, any contracts involving the employment of Major League Baseball players at the Major League level. So just for Major League Baseball players, like Kurt Flood, that would now be subject to sort of the normal rules of antitrust and labor law, for that matter. But these clauses aren't used anymore anyway, so it's sort of, in some sense, factually irrelevant, but maybe a little legal issue. Congress left everything else that this law doesn't apply to anything else involving baseball. So, in effect, the exemption, which Congress never approved, very different from 
all other exemptions that we have, virtually all other exemptions. Congress never approved this one. The exemption continues. Does baseball operate like a monopoly, and is that unlike football or basketball or hockey? So we could argue whether football and hockey and all of those operate like monopolies. Separate argument, at least they are all subject to the antitrust laws. So all sports, professional, uh, the NCAA, you know, college sports, all sports have been subject to the antitrust laws in the court. Sport after sport will say, you know, baseball is its own thing. You're covered. So they are not free to violate the antitrust laws. Now, whether what they do is legal under the antitrust laws is another story. And your question is a really good one because in the most recent Supreme Court case involving organized sports, which involved the NCAA with NCAA against Alston and the effort of the NCAA to suppress the amount of compensation to, quote, what they like to call student-athletes. And basically they wanted to argue in the Supreme Court that you should really treat us differently. And the Supreme Court wrote, no, we're not treating you differently. You don't have any reason to. And Justice Gorsuch, for the majority, sort of dropped a little hint about this and mentioned that the Supreme Court in the past had dallied, this was his word, with what looks like an exemption for professional baseball. But we're not going to give it to you, folks. So you, NCAA, are fully subject to the antitrust laws, and um, your conduct is subject to the antitrust laws. So the court seemed to have recognized, this is decided in 2021, again, that baseball is a bit of an aberration. In this case, you have minor league teams who are eliminated, alleging a violation of the Sherman Act, caused by a horizontal agreement between competitors that has artificially reduced and capped output in the market for MLB teams affiliated with MLB clubs. And a federal judge dismissed it because of the baseball exemption. Right. Federal Judge Andrew Carter said plaintiffs believe that the Supreme Court is poised to knock out the exemption like a boxer waiting to launch a left hook after her opponent tosses out a torpid jab. It's possible. So this would squarely present the baseball exemption to the Supreme Court. So that's correct. That's what's teeing up the interest at the moment. The case went to the Court of Appeals, which just sort of summarily agreed with the trial court great quote that you read there. And now the minor league teams who alleged a violation by being excluded from an agreement that the majors have made, which limit the number of minor league teams they can affiliate with, are now asking the Supreme Court to take the case. So the first question is, will they take it? And presumably, if the court takes it, it means that they're interested in overruling the three cases that I mentioned. And the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't lightly overrule cases. Well, maybe I should take that I was going to say until recently. (laughs) Yeah. And the court has overruled, on occasion, longstanding antitrust precedent that parties had followed for many years. The case is called Legion, which involved the legality of setting resale prices. The Supreme Court overruled an older case which had stood for 90 years 
even longer than federal baseball. So it's possible the court would would take this case, but I would wait to see if the Justice Department expresses a desire to, to have the court take the case and overrule these other three cases. Thanks so much, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. Coming up, Double Jeopardy. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Law as we look back at some high-profile Supreme Court cases from 2023. They're tough in Louisiana, Libby. You shoot me, they'll give you the gas chamber. No, they won't. It's called double jeopardy. I learned a few things in prison, Nick. I could shoot you in the middle of Mardi Gras and they can't touch me. As an ex-law professor, I can assure you she is right. The Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause. We all know about it from TV and the movies. So why did Georgia prosecutors want to try Damien McElrath a second time after a jury had found him not guilty of the malice murder of his adoptive mother by reason of insanity? Well, there's a twist. The jury also found McElrath guilty, though mentally ill, of felony murder and aggravated assault. And the Georgia Supreme Court ruled that those inconsistent verdicts were illogical and threw them out. But a majority of Supreme Court justices across the ideological spectrum seem to agree that once a person has been acquitted of a charge, the matter is closed. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch. And we do not ever talk about whether they make sense to us. They may be products of compromise. They may be inconsistent with verdicts on other counts. We don't question them. And this is the first time this issue has arisen here. Shouldn't that tell us something? Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. George, tell us about these inconsistent verdicts. So the basic facts are a delusional defendant believed that his mother was trying to poison him and as a result, stabbed her to death. Called 911, told the dispatcher what he'd done and why he was right to have done it. He went to trial on three counts, by the way, and that's where this comes up. So three separate charges. The first one under Georgia law is called malice of murder. 
which is equivalent to a first-degree murder, always the most serious charge, the one that typically can carry a capital punishment. And then there were two other counts, a felony murder rule, which means that he killed someone in connection with committing a felony, in this case, an aggravated assault. And so the third charge was aggravated assault. And you might ask, why do prosecutors bring three separate charges when one act occurred a killing. And they do that because sometimes they want to present the jury with the option of convicting on a lesser offense if they think they might have a problem with the principal offense. And that's exactly what happened here. The jury deliberated and the defense was he was insane. So he lacked the criminal intent to commit murder. And the jury deliberated and found him not guilty by reason of insanity on the first count, saying he was crazy. But on counts two and three, the felony murder and the aggravated assault, the jury found that he was sane and convicted him. The state of Georgia, unhappy with that, went to the court and said, well, we need a new trial because these verdicts are logically inconsistent. You can't be crazy on one count, the worst count, but sane on the other counts. And that went all the way to the Georgia Supreme Court, which agreed. The court said the verdicts on these two different counts are logically repugnant. And as a result, it vacated the not guilty verdict and told the state that they were free to retry him. And that's what went up to the Supreme Court. Whether there should be an exception to the double jeopardy clause, and the exception would allow if the verdicts were logically inconsistent, which jury verdicts are, by the way, frequently, (laughs) uh, they'd be allowed to retry him. And Justice Gorsuch seemed particularly fervent about respecting the jury's verdict of acquittal. The rule in this country for the last 230 years, as Justice Gorsuch pointed out, is you only get one chance, and if that jury verdict comes back not guilty, there can be no retrial. We don't, the court system, does not second-guess acquittals. So, for example, if the acquittal is based upon what's called jury nullification, they simply ignore the evidence, you know, or the verdict is illogically inconsistent between two different counts. The court system is not allowed to second-guess that. What usually happens, probably happened in this case, was the inconsistent verdicts were a product of compromise. Justice Gorsuch addressed that. They may be products of compromise. They may be inconsistent with other verdicts. We, Justice Gorsuch said, the court system does not question those verdicts. And that has been the law in this country for 230 years. Inconsistent verdicts happen all the time. I tried one as a prosecutor, and the judge said, well, we have two verdicts. One is inconsistent with the other, and the case is finished. So double jeopardy applies. Thanks, George. That's George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. I'm June Grosso. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.